0: Bank runs are not uncommon in China, but what's different now is that virtually any report of corruption causes depositors to start withdrawing their funds, and then the authorities show up and they put cash in the window off into the bank to show that they have enough cash to honor deposits. This is a very standard sort of playbook. These banks themselves- Like physically- Physically like pile cash in the window, yes. And are they real bills? Oh, yeah, I'm I'm sure they are. Tried and true tactic. I mean, if you want to be shown that there's money in the bank, show the money in the bank.
1: The Chinese economy is perhaps the world's only bright spot. So that means we can stop worrying about a financial crisis, right? Think again. Lauren Glaudeman and Logan Wright of Rhodium Group join us to discuss their new paper on the topic. Co-hosting today will be Bern Hobart of the DIFF newsletter at diff.substack.com. Do know that this report is a follow-up to Logan's 2008 paper entitled Credit and Credibility. We did a show back together a little over a year ago, back in the good old China econ talk days, and I think that episode is still very much relevant today. Let's start in medias res a little bit. Want to set the stage of the latest financial crisis of sorts, which actually took place pre-COVID. So what happened in late 2019 with the Baoshang Bank, and how does the story illustrate some of the themes in your report?
0: Uh, Sure. Basically, in May 2019, we had this sudden news that Baoshang Bank, which is the largest bank in Inner Mongolia, was suddenly taken over by Chinese regulators and was going to be placed basically in a, a form of receivership by China Construction Bank. And this basically came virtually out of nowhere. There's numerous theories about why exactly Baoshang was actually taken over. There's a lot of ties to an individual who owned shares in a company that controlled the bank that had been investigated in the form of a corruption inquiry. So there was a lot of rumor associated with that. But all of a sudden, this highly levered bank, which had depended significantly on interbank funding, on funding from other Uh, financial institutions and lent heavily to shadow banks or third-party financial institutions had basically been declared insolvent. And for the first time, you had the prospect that if you deposited money in the bank or you lent money to the bank, you might actually um, lose some of that money, that there was a meaningful credit risk. Now, this is taken for granted in more developed financial systems. There are systems like deposit insurance to prevent depositors from facing these losses. But for corporate and interbank depositors, those protections are naturally less extensive precisely because they want to encourage a reasonable degree of risk assessment when placing those funds. So for the first time, basically since 1998, there was the prospect that a bank could fail in China. And that basically hit the market like a thunderbolt, because this was, in essence, what you know we call counterparty solvency risk. In the past, you might not lend to some other institutions because you thought that they might not have enough money to do business with you in a short period of time, but you never really worried that they were going to fail. If the ag bank, for example, was sorting out its own internal business over a scandal, dealing with some fraudulent uh, bill financing loans, which has happened in the past. Maybe financial institutions wouldn't lend to the ag bank for a week or so, but no one thought that the ag bank was suddenly going to vanish. But now there was the prospect that you could actually face losses on lending to banks. And so with any new risk, the, the issue with China's financial system, this is what we described in the 2018 report, Credit and Credibility, in China's financial system, most assets are assumed to be guaranteed, either implicitly or explicitly. And it's really the credibility of those guarantees that has been the greatest bulwark against financial crisis so far. So all of a sudden, you're unraveling those guarantees. And you're saying, not only could a corporate bond default, or maybe even an SOE default on a loan, but now you're looking at the prospect that a bank itself might not be safe. And so what happened immediately after that was that everyone in China's interbank market started looking very closely at not only were they exposed to Baoshang had they lent money to Baoshang but is are they exposed to banks that look like Baoshang and the issue is that no one really had a great idea what banks should look like relative to Baoshang so they started making very arbitrary distinctions Maybe we won't lend to banks that just haven't filed their annual reports this year. Maybe we won't lend to banks that are also concentrated in Inner Mongolia. Maybe we won't lend to other banks that have the same corporate shareholder. And so very quickly, a large number of banks started seeing a significant contraction in their interbank funding. And that's a significant sign of stress within the financial system. And before long, other banks started to run into these difficulties. So since Baoshang defaulted in late May 2019, we've seen four other banks formally restructured. And we've also seen numerous other reports of smaller bank runs among regional financial institutions and little city and rural financial institutions. That news has been making headlines earlier this year, some of it before COVID, some of it after. But ultimately, all of this is linked to the creation of this new counterparty solvency that's happening with Baoshong. So that's basically what's happened. And in a way, this is a good thing. And I just want to say this up front. There has to be some meaningful pricing of risk. The reason that the PBOC and regulators probably allowed Bauschong to fail after it ran into difficulties was that you don't want a financial system to basically just keep expanding based on the assumption of these implicit guarantees for risky interbank borrowing. It only feeds into riskier activity. So some discipline needs to be imposed. The problem is that when you're imposing that discipline, and we discussed this in the the previous report as well as this one, you can't be sure how much of that market risk is consistent with a reasonable pricing of credit risks and how much is consistent with growing financial contagion that could potentially lead to crisis unless you take more complex steps to cut it off. So that's really the dilemma that Chinese regulators have found themselves in the post-Baoshang world, even before COVID.
2: So you alluded to this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on whether or not you think of Baozhang as part of the, the traditional banking system or as more adjacent to the shadow banking system. And did the average banker, average person in China view it as a failure of a bank or more as a problem with the shadow banking system that didn't reflect as much on the traditional
0: banks? No, good question. It is a traditional bank, but it, but like many traditional banks, the fastest growing parts of China's banking system basically since 2012 have been small city and rural commercial banks and in the early years, national level joint stock banks. But the reason they were expanding so fast is they were basically restructuring loans as shadow assets. And there's many different forms of this that we can get into if you really want to describe the complexity. But the whole idea is, can you restructure a loan so it doesn't look like a loan, so that therefore you don't have to carry as much capital on your balance sheet in order to support that asset? Baoshang Bank was a fairly risky bank in that it relied heavily upon interbank liabilities and upon funding from other banks. And it was an extensive lender to some, not only other banks, but third-party institutions. So interbank traders, believe it or not, they viewed Baoshang as their friend at the end of the day if they were in over their heads. If you were a non-bank financial institution that was scrambling to square your position at the end of the day because you had to make up for losses elsewhere or you'd seen withdrawals and redemptions, they were often told to go try Baoshang. Uh, so Baoshang's absence by itself, regardless of some of the other secondary impacts, seemed to have an impact on the overall funding for shadow banks. So I wouldn't say it was the everyday person who saw this as a collapse in trust in the official system, per se. But for traders, it was definitely a shock. And they're the ones that are really determining how fast banks are growing in terms of where they're actually willing to deploy capital.
1: In our past conversation, Logan, we walked through the sort of level of tolerance that the Chinese government has for sort of financial instability. Because as you said, on the one hand, we've had a lot of conversation in the U.S. recently about fire management, And there's the idea that if you sort of let things burn out a little bit, then you'll save yourself from the big one. So where did the the speed and the decisiveness of the response in 2019 compare to some of the past financial crises in recent history that the Chinese government was forced to respond to?
0: I think that's a reasonable that's a reasonably good analogy. And the one I playfully like to use, it's like a $47 trillion game of Jenga. You have to remove these individual components of a tower, and you can't be sure exactly which one is going to create additional stress further up the line when you're trying to create new sources of credit risk. I think the analogy breaks down because you you hope that the whole system becomes more stable after you've actually taken some measures to start to recognize credit risk overall. But It's certainly better in terms of their response in 2019 than 2015. I think it's probably analogous to what took place in 2013 in the interbank market crisis as well. At that point, you had a very blunt force attempt to try to reduce shadow banking reliance within a much smaller banking system at the time. And the shock of the PBOC's change in behavior nearly brought the system to a halt. This time with Baoshang, it seemed that there were two decisions basically made. One was to take over the bank, and no one's quite sure exactly what last-minute decision essentially compelled to take over the bank. But the second decision was to impose haircuts on corporate and interbank depositors. I think that should be viewed as a separate crisis management step. And that decision is really the one that had the greater consequences for overall credit extension and the stability of China's financial system after Baoshang. So I've been reading a lot about the, the Japanese banking crisis in, in recent months as a point of, of comparison. And Japan's approach to bank failures when they started to pop up was a convoy system. Basically, they would use larger banks to absorb the losses of smaller banks. And that's sort of what China has done initially with Baoshang. They initially allowed this to be taken over by China Construction Bank before pursuing a more formal restructuring and and sales of shares in the bank with recapitalization. The problem with that system comes when you run out of large enough banks to absorb banks that are in trouble. And so all of a sudden, those guarantees, that credibility, the idea that a large bank could suddenly fail, all of a sudden, that credibility is lost, and you start to see a more general panic. In Japan, most people attribute that to the failure of Hokkaido Takushoku Bank in 1997, which was the largest, one of the largest banks in Hokkaido. I think it was the 11th largest bank in Japan at the time. What's interesting about all of those bailouts and restructuring is they had never actually imposed haircuts on depositors. They never told depositors to withdraw their funding. They were constantly trying to reassure depositors. And so, you know, China has already crossed a Rubicon that the Japanese regulators never did.
1: Well, as someone who still has maybe 5,000 RMB in a Chinese construction bank account used at this point exclusively to buy Steam games on the Chinese version of Steam, I'm glad that they're not going to have to saddle every crappy provincial bank's debt going forward.
0: I'd imagine you'll still be able to buy your Steam games, yes.
1: Until Alipay and, uh, and WeChat get shut down, and then I'm really going to be out of luck. But anyways, let's turn to your your main topic. So Lauren, why do we need a financial stress indicator and what Chinese characteristics does it need to have to apply to China?
3: China's economic system and financial system specifically has expanded massively in the last decade. We're talking about a banking system that's quadrupled in size in the decade after 2008 and China accounting for nearly half of global growth over that time. And while the financial system has expanded, its intricacies have also become more complex, evolving in ways that's become more difficult for Beijing to have visibility into in ways that make it difficult to control for financial risks. At a very basic level, this financial expansion warrants more attention and urgent attention given how quickly the expansion has proceeded. That being said, a lot of the tools that are out there, many of them have focused on post-global financial crisis, monitoring for similar risks to try and avoid that scale of calamity in the global economy. A lot of the cross-country frameworks, though, are less relevant for China. And some of those primarily come from traits about China's own financial system and economy. And some of those are just the way that cross-country comparisons are built just for that reason, diluting the country-specific takeaways and specific instruments that are most important in thinking about financial risk in a country. In the case of China, and this is central to the overall thesis of the report, Certain prices of financial instruments are controlled, and that makes it very difficult to um, get any kind of visibility into the pricing of credit risks in the economy and different financial markets. I think a prime example that we talk about in the report are corporate credit risk measures, such as relative yield spreads. These are areas where we just haven't typically seen a lot of financial risk represented in the spread between, let's say, like a AAA corporate rate versus a AA or something like that. And for that reason, corporate credit risk measures are often featured in more kind of advanced economy measures, financial conditions indexes or financial stress indexes. But we de-emphasize them in our own measure just because there's a very short history of any credit risk being shown for corporate credits through these measures. On the other hand, one thing that we do know about where Beijing has allowed risks to or has played around with letting more risk shine through is particularly in the interbank market. And Logan touched on a lot of that in the discussion of Baoshang and the way that big banks and now smaller banks have traded with non-banks and shadow banks. We have seen the central bank act to allow a little bit more risk to come through in terms of the market pricing of, of certain interbank rates. And so our methodology in creating some of these indicators does heavily emphasize, I would say, interbank rates and other measures that are related to the interbank market. I I think fundamentally, this is getting to a question about how does China fit into how we think about different economies around the world. China's credit expansion and economic expansion has been massive. And so it defies comparison to other emerging markets. When we think about financial risks, where if you're thinking about kind of an Asian financial crisis story, then you might be thinking about cross-border capital flows and the impact and risks that come with it. Whereas now, based on the size of China's economy alone, there's a temptation to use metrics and tools that are more tailored to developed economies as well. But fundamentally, there's just a limited history of, of credit risk in China. And so that's really one of the main things that's informed our approach here. And then finally, Again, getting back to really the central theme in Logan's 2018 work, credit and credibility, and going back to the central thesis of the risk matrix project is this concept of credibility in Beijing's ability to tamp down financial risks that's come up, the importance of implicit guarantees backing a lot of financial transactions in the economy, and the ways in which that credibility is being eroded. And that's why going ahead a little bit, we think about instances, specific instances that we know are events that have tested Beijing's credibility, and then thinking about how different variables reacted in that situation.
2: So you raise a really interesting point on pricing of corporate credit risk, and the Chinese banking system doesn't really do it. So the natural question from there is, how does it get allocated. So you would assume given that the people with the strongest incentive to borrow are the least creditworthy borrowers, and maybe that has an effect on the quality of the bank's loan books. But I'm presuming there are some other forces that determine who gets to borrow money and how much they get to borrow.
3: It's an interesting question. And it makes me think about the ways in which financial risks have emerged in ways that Beijing has not necessarily had the ability to monitor. I'm thinking... Specifically, in, in the peer-to-peer lending craze that really took off, I would say what 2014, 2015 to 2016, where there's clear demand from borrowers who are deemed less creditworthy. Uh, a lot of them could be implicitly linked, you know, back to the property market to developers. Big banks tend to lend to to big SOEs, and so there definitely is a gap there. And what we saw as a result of you know strong demand from these individual borrowers is basically an opportunity for a financial system with a pretty big shadow banking presence to take advantage of this opportunity to charge high rates for really small individual borrowers, allow a lot of financial risks in this unregulated market to build up, and having a lot of speculative investors take advantage of some of the arbitrage opportunities that resulted from the emergence of the P2P financing scheme before regulators eventually stepped in.
0: Just add one, one point that we like to make regarding overall interest rate levels. So I think for the question you ask is it's a bit more complex because you're in essence saying that there's a subsidy implied on corporate credit risk. So who's paying that subsidy and where does it show up elsewhere within the system if corporate credit risk is not being appropriately priced? And it's a pretty complex uh, tracing uh, that goes on at that point in terms of we think the subsidy is ultimately linked to the government's guarantee itself in terms of where it who's ultimately paying. But I would think about it just sim- in a simpler fashion. Look at the return on assets for most of China's listed companies and then look at the real average lending rate. What's interesting is that ever since 2012, the return on assets for china's listed companies just in an average has been below the real lending rate for all but basically two years when there was a rise in producer price inflation in 2016 and 2017 so what does that tell you it tells you that there's not many incentives to borrow for investment because you're not going to generate the returns to do so there are incentives however to borrow for speculative activity which is exactly what we have seen in multiple channels within China's financial system over the same time frame. In one instance, therefore, those interest rates in China are probably too high relative to the underlying rate of economic expansion and the potential returns in investment. And that's a very counterintuitive finding within a state-run financial system. Because the assumption that everyone commonly has is that interest rates in China have been too low because credit is cheap and provided by the state. And it's certainly true relative to other forms of credit in the system. But the overall interest rate level is is still much higher than returns would justify. So I just point that out as well. And we're comparing the real return on assets to a real lending rate that's adjusted for PPI growth.
1: So, coming now to the Chinese state capacity to deal with these risks. So there's a simplistic narrative, which you hear the Chinese state push, which has been ingested and regurgitated by a lot of the financiers who are particularly amenable to China, like the Ray Dalio or Stephen Schwartzman story, um, which is basically that Chinese regulators are wise and all-knowing technocrats and that we should trust them to do the right thing and that they have the sort of tools and know-how to avoid a potential financial crisis. So what mud can you throw in the water of this narrative?
0: We take that argument very seriously. I think it is the critical argument to address regarding the potential for financial risk in China. And within the risk matrix report, there is an entire chapter devoted to diagramming what China's state capacity is. The the third chapter of the report and the tools that they would use differently from other systems, The issue is that first, this is unprecedented in global and historical terms. So it's one thing to say that financial technocrats are very intelligent and have their fingers on the pulse of what's happening within the financial system. But there's no real base of experience upon which to make that judgment because this is the largest single country credit expansion within a very complex system than we've seen in the last hundred years at least. And the complexity of the system has consistently run ahead of the regulatory tools that have evolved to manage it. Second of all, and I think this is perhaps the most important aspect, is that financial technocrats aren't always in charge in a crisis. In 2015, for example, when the stock market was melting down, there's pretty good reporting uh, from major media that highlighted that China's financial technocrats were very opposed to the bailout strategy that authorities embarked upon. And it's one reason I think that it was so poorly received in international markets. And this was seen as basically China changing the rules of its financial system suddenly because those technocrats were, were not in charge and were not actually able to weigh in. Within a one-party political system or within any political system, there's no guarantee that financial technocrats will be able to basically jump to the front of the line in being able to manage this. You have to acknowledge that there's a significant problem and that you have to resort to outside expertise, and sometimes those recommendations might be unwelcome at the political level. Nonetheless, the point of our report is basically to highlight what are those sources of financial stress— that directly overlap with the areas where Beijing's state capacity is likely to be weakest and where that state capacity is more likely to come under pressure. And what are the characteristics of those financial markets? And and property is first among these because there's large numbers of participants. There's basically very unclear pricing signals throughout And the market itself is large enough that it thwarts an immediate sort of bailout effort because this was really the market that Beijing struggled to control on the way up as prices were rising. And we would argue it's probably more likely to struggle when prices are on their way down. But it is not to – I think that the the view you expressed is a very common view, and we hear it all the time, that when authorities want to manage this problem – that they certainly have the tools to to do so. I think that you need to unpack the political economy of China, and and there's been great work by Victor Shu and others who have really tried to diagram under what circumstances financial technocrats actually have more influence, that it's certainly not a straightforward political decision to just let the technocrats do what they want. And if, if you look throughout recent Chinese history, Technocrats aren't always the one pushing for financial stability. In fact, in this sort of system, technocrats are actually the ones often trying to introduce financial risk in a limited fashion. So it's not just a matter of, can we find a pocket of risk and control it? That's inconsistent with financial reform. You need to find a pocket of risk and then decide how much of that risk you want to be priced within the financial system. And until you do that, you can't really be sure what its effects are going to be. And that's where I think the argument ultimately breaks down.
2: So why is there transfer in authority Why don't the technocrats get their way? Is it a vulgar Marxist kind of thing where the people in power are the direct beneficiaries of bailout for speculators? Is it because the financial crisis can turn into a political crisis? So you shunt the financial people aside. What's the dynamic there?
0: It's probably beyond the scope of me trying to outline that because it really is ultimately a political economy question. But in 2015, for example, when you had the stock market meltdown, I think that was a question that was raised. Why did China care so much that the stock market was weakening? Did it really pose a systemic financial risk? We would arguably not. Although there were some that said that there were enough margin loans outstanding, that was a concern, and so therefore you had to respond. But the net result of that bailout was basically to freeze sell orders for a while and force state-owned enterprises to buy stocks in larger proportions. And that ended up basically there's still losses on those positions. The stock market has not regained those levels ever since 2015. So it's obviously a costly bailout, even if you thought that the political costs were were worth it. And most Technocrats probably would not have gone along with that. That's at least what the major media reporting said at the time about those internal discussions. But for some reason, that was viewed as a political cost that was too heavy to bear. Often when you know things rise to the front page of major financial press, there is a response from China that doesn't necessarily come from the more technocratically minded officials within the system.
1: Let's now walk through Beijing's toolkit. What does dry power look like in the PBOC, and how are the sort of techniques that they have similar and different from what the, say, Fed has at its disposal?
0: Sure. There's an extensive discussion of a lot of this within the report itself, within Chapter 3, but also within Credit and Credibility in Chapter 4, where we go through all of the PBOC's tools to lend to financial institutions in distress. There's generally an assumption that if a financial institution is in distress— There's not really going to be a legal or political constraint on a central bank getting access to lend to that institution, even if they don't have collateral, for example. So there's a number of different tools that involve short-term lending on the basis of collateral, the medium-term lending facility, the standing lending facility at the high end of China's interest rate corridor, other sort of ECB measures where they've done collateralized lending for longer-term loans, and then there's even more emergency facilities, such as granting loans against pledge deposits. There's, and then there's an outright relending facility, which can often just be used to extend credit to institutions where it's necessary if they're facing distress. So those tools are more conventional. Most central banks have that. What's different in China, I think, is that there's also this assumption of extreme administrative force. To compel institutions to buy or to sort out and absorb losses collectively. Often in developed markets, this only happens when you have a long term capital management story in the late 1990s and you huddle creditors together and agree to take losses in order to stabilize the system.
1: I thought you were going to throw it back to the Morgan in the 1920s.
0: Or or back to, I think it was the 1907 crisis. You had a similar workout. In China, that happens more frequently. There's an assumption that if there is distress that with something like what just happened with Evergrande, we don't really know the process yet. But many of the institutions that could have pressed Evergrande to repay on January 31st, all of a sudden are saying that they won't exercise those buyback options. So there's likely some sort of administrative pressure to reduce that immediate stress. And that's very different. They just got sent really good mooncakes, I think might have been. (laughs) You know, those are very different processes. The same thing happened in 2016. A small securities firm refused to honor some entrusted bond contracts and all of their creditors gathered over the weekend. So that's a different process. But what people are really thinking about most of the time is the this administrative force mechanism like what happened in 2015. If the market is turning against you, you just tell certain market participants to buy. You call in the national team. Those measures work, but only up to a certain point And they typically provide delaying tactics rather than really resolving the fundamental financial stress. So we never view that as all that credible. It also doesn't work in something like the property market where there's just too many players involved. That's part of the aspect of the toolkit. The other is, I think, a lack of legal constraints. In many developed market financial crisis playbooks, there are established authorities in place for the central bank, for financial regulators, for deposit insurance firms. And you have to protect creditors' rights at various stages and investors' rights at various stages in this process of working out distressed financial institutions. In China, that process is very preliminary at best, and it's arguable how much those legal constraints would ever really matter. That is is a meaningful difference, I would say.
1: Can you do transparency real quick?
0: Yeah, the other issue that I think is is different is that China typically tries to resolve some of these instances of financial stress in a non-transparent manner. They don't come out and say that we have sorted out the obligations of this firm, and this firm will take X amount of loss, and this firm will take Y amount of loss, and this firm will take Z amount of loss, and therefore there will be a straightforward recapitalization. When Baoshang was taken over, all you heard was China Construction Bank is going to take over the bank for a year. When the Bank of Jinzhou suddenly needed credit risk mitigation warrants, there wasn't a transparent plan advanced for its eventual restructuring and recapitalization at that time, which took place last year. So what China often tries to do is have a non-transparent crisis. So the benefits of that is that no one's really quite sure exactly how bad the losses are. So that therefore, you can keep some low-level financial stress covered up for longer than most investors might be willing to accept. The problem is that when you actually do want information about where these losses are actually being held because shareholders are wondering, what's the chance that I'm going to be diluted by a new rights offering? What's the chance that I'm actually facing losses on this corporate bond? What's the chance that my corporate deposit might not be safe in this bank? That lack of transparency becomes a key issue because even when you are providing information no one necessarily trusts it as complete. And so therefore, you've seen this evidence in, for example, some of the smaller bank runs in rural China this past year. Very small banks, but there have been numerous reports of runs. And bank runs are not uncommon in China. But what's different now is that virtually any report of corruption causes depositors to start withdrawing their funds. And then, the authorities show up, and they put cash in the window off into the bank to show that they have enough cash to honor deposits. This is a very standard sort of playbook. These banks like, themselves – Like physically – Physically like- like pile cash in the window, yes. and <laughs> Are they real bills? Oh, yeah. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Like, sure to it, 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 tried, t- tried and true tactic. I mean if you want to be shown that there's money in the bank, show the money in the bank.
1: I just love that, to like rural Anhui or whatever, they just send ten trucks, and they're like, "Okay, guys, we got this." Everyone well,
0: and, and the local officials will show up and say, "We stand behind the obligations of the bank." The issue is that when the market's calling for more information, you have to be more transparent, right? There's nothing quite more transparent than putting the cash in the window of the bank, and that's that's the problem when you're using non-transparent means of resolving these crises. If you don't really have a plan. Everyone worries in the interbank market whether the bank I'm lending to is going to be – this is a very common sentiment for pulling back loans to to troubled banks. Everyone assumes that probably the next bank to fail will be bailed out and the one after that and maybe the third and maybe the fourth and maybe the fifth. But if we get to the 25th or 30th and you're less certain and so therefore you'd like to pull back lending now because if – you're not really sure exactly where the bank that's your counterparty is going to fall within the overall line. And so it'd be different if there was a transparent mechanism through which banks facing these kinds of difficulties will face a certain proportion of depositor haircuts and a certain proportion of of government stabilization funds. But that's not what we see right now. So there's a benefit to a lack of transparency up until the moment that all of a sudden that becomes a liability. But in the short term, it makes sense in the early stages of a, a slow-motion banking crisis to say that all of these bank failures are one-offs. There's not a systemic problem. This is sure. caused by a corrupt shareholder. This is caused by excessive lending to the shadow banking institution. That's all very logical, and it doesn't make sense to disclose more information in that context.
1: Could you do a sort of degree of difficulty ranking in a crisis of the Fed, the ECB and, and the PBOC, which do you think is the hardest to sort of pull off and balance? And who is who who has a relative cakewalk when it comes to managing financial crises?
0: Very tough question. First of all, I think you have to default to the Fed being facing the most difficult job because everything they do faces an immediate reaction, similarly to the ECB and what they had to manage in 2011, 2012, before the whatever it takes moment was you know quite a quite a test of of that capacity, which they eventually passed in terms of managing the crisis. I think it's probably the Fed, the ECB, and then the PBOC. The PBOC's challenge is not only there's probably not quite as much information, but it's really that anything that they do, they have to use blunter and blunter measures to basically get the market's attention. Because if the market assumes that ultimately you're going to be there for their support, you have to really go out on a limb to demonstrate that no actually you could face losses in this respect and the risk of doing that is it causes surprises so i think the pbsc i sympathize with their plight you're not an independent central bank unlike the the fed or the ecb you have to be responsive to political authorities but you don't necessarily have very tailored tools that the market will respond to in terms of understanding where risk is I think they've done a, a very admirable job trying to improve the market pricing of those risks with some of the tools that they've implemented, but it still doesn't you know, solve the more fundamental problem that just comes from so many assets being guaranteed.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because the Fed and the ECB, they sort of only have to get one thing right. But getting that one thing right is like extraordinarily weighty and you're judged minute by minute on it. And if you screw it up, the whole world potentially falls apart. Whereas the PBOC, it's almost like there's 10,000 plates in the air. And you also have Xi Jinping looking over your shoulder, ready to foil your plans if you're going too fast. There are clearly different dynamics at play. And none of these is really a walk in the park for anyone. I don't know, Bern, if you had a riff on this.
2: At one level, an independent central bank or a non-independent central bank has one nice advantage, which is that it's ultimately controlled by the same institutions that can enact fiscal policy. So you don't end up with weird cases like the ones you get in the Western world where sometimes the central bank is just intervening a lot more aggressively. And so the intervention is way more weighted towards monetary policy. And then you have that odd situation where markets are ripping asset prices are doing great and unemployment is really high i would imagine that if the fed were in charge of fiscal policy somehow that we'd be running significantly larger deficits but maybe wouldn't have quite the same level of extraordinary monetary policy so that it is possible to coordinate but i guess the world is full of trade offs and one of the trade offs is you can coordinate but not with someone who has the same interests that a central banker would.
0: And there's the irony in China, which is that the MOF and PBOC are, you know, famously right now sort of at odds over fiscal policy, the balance of support for local governments and for banks between fiscal policy and monetary support, with the MOF trying to argue that this is ultimately the PBOC's responsibility, and the PBOC arguing that you need more direct fiscal policy support. A lack of central bank independence doesn't necessarily remove these debates either um, in the Chinese context, but uh, otherwise that's absolutely right. Let's do one more beat on it. What are the Ministry of Finance incentives here? Ministry of Finance's incentives in dealing with the banking system are, their argument is that there's no way the banking system could have expanded to this extent and created this much local government debt without failures of central bank and CBIRC regulation. So the Ministry of Finance's argument is that, look, local government debt is local government debt. The central government is not going to bail out local government debt. Meanwhile, that's a completely unrealistic position. Of course, the central government will have to bail out some aspects of local government debt, but they have an incentive to maintain the ambiguity. Why? Because if they come out and say, okay, the central government is on the hook for all local government debt and all banking system debt, then what's going to happen? Basically, Uh, local government debt will continue to expand and you'll have an even larger systemic problem. And then all of a sudden, the fiscal space that you've been safeguarding in terms of your ability to provide fiscal policy is basically gone all in one swoop. And the whole system looks more highly indebted. The local governments in turn, that's where the MOF wants to maintain that ambiguity. But if they go in the other direction and basically say, we're not bailing any of you out, we're not going to provide any support. First, no one really thinks that's realistic. But if it does happen, then all of a sudden you're going to get far more pervasive defaults at the local government level, which is what we're starting to see happen. So invariably, there's this back and forth, this ebb and flow. You put pressure on local governments to try to resolve the debt problem on their own. That slows the economy too much. Then you relax and the economy starts growing once again. And then you try to put pressure on them again. And ultimately, that's the way that they think that they can keep this under control. So you guys focus on five
1: key areas of risks in which rapid changes to Beijing's credibility can have significant implications for financial stability and which operate at the boundaries of state capacity. Property, banks, debt or credit, external pressure, and openness. I want to pick one or two of those and take us under the hood of the, the indicators that you let into this uh, matrix?
3: Sure. Uh, although I do want to note that there is a sixth, which is the financial stress indicator itself. We do talk in the report about the difference in importance between financial stress and financial vulnerability, but a lot of the heavy work on the quantitative side in terms of the contribution of the report here went into the financial stress index itself. We're dealing with a fundamental question for anyone looking at China's economy, which is distrust in the official headline data which means there was a real challenge here, and it's a challenge in any existing research that's been done on the topic of trying to create a financial stress index for China, which is what does the dependent variable look like here? There's been no history of financial crisis or prior to COVID economic contraction. And so in crafting the indicator selection, the variable selection there, The approach there, what are we trying to measure for? What does it look like? We actually have no idea. And in terms of a really interesting approach, the way we chose to go was basically looking at three instances of known financial stress based on our own experience and monitoring China's economy and essentially took our variables, detrended them, and we used some modeling techniques that compares all of our daily data to characteristics observed by the model in these three periods of financial stress and is looking essentially at each one to determine similarities and differences in order to create kind of a hybrid dependent variable. And this goes back to the trouble of thinking about the stability of China's GDP growth, the stability of industrial value added growth, all these measures that usually tell us when financial stress is happening uh, or rather, when economic stress is underway in any other economy, they don't tell us the same thing about China's economy. So just a plug for the overall FSI here in the report. There is a lot of really valuable contributions, I think, in the other key areas of vulnerability that we flag here. And I think I'll let Logan talk about what I would consider probably the, the more important ones. Um, we've already talked about banking a little bit, property you know, being at the heart of where we see evolving risks in China's economy. But one thing I I do want to flag is this concept of openness as one of our key areas of vulnerability. And the, the reason that I find it intriguing is that on the one hand, if you're on kind of team reform, waiting around for China to finally take some of its reform initiatives seriously particularly in the financial sector then you're looking for foreign holdings of China's financial instruments to rise you're looking for more capital account openness so on the one hand you might think uh, it's good for for those metrics or rather for the volume of those flows to increase but in reality openness is a source of financial risk for China and so on the one hand you know acknowledging that openness and capital account liberalization is part of the future trajectory for China at the same time, acknowledging that participation from foreign actors makes it more difficult for Chinese authorities to maintain a degree of control in some of those domestic markets. Um, And so, in fact, openness, which everyone's waiting around for, in terms of being a, a variable, we have to make it a negative contribution to the indicator, which is say increasing openness is actually an increasing risk.
0: All right, Logan, let's talk property for a little bit. Sure. I think that there's many reasons to be concerned about the property sector as a key source of financial risk. There's also a good reason to be concerned that this is a key drag on the Chinese economy within the next decade. The primary reason is that the fundamentals of the market have just completely changed within the last four to five years. China's accumulated a bit over $5 trillion in household debt since the end of 2014, Their household debt-to-income ratio is very similar, if not higher, than where the U.S. was pre-crisis. Now, that by itself does not indicate anything, as there are other countries that have higher household debt-to-income ratios. But it shows that there's not that much additional scope for households to add additional borrowing. The demographic challenges from China are definitely biting And it looks to us like the pace of current construction, which it measured in new starts, is roughly three times the pace of new household formation in urban areas over the next decade. And some slowdown in property construction is likely. In terms of financial stress, though, the reason that we would flag this as so important within the risk matrix is that it overlaps within areas that are very difficult for Beijing to manage. A, there's just so many participants. And it's such a large market. Real estate assets, according to most household finance surveys, are more than half of Chinese households' net worth. So it's highly significant within the overall economy. Second, there's such large numbers of participants, you have to coordinate them through price signals. And so they have to respond to price signals rather than blunter administrative interventions. And yet, at the same time, those price signals aren't very clear. So it's really hard for Beijing to deliver a message that says they're going to either support the market or control the market. Ever since 2010, Beijing's basically been trying to control price growth within the property sector. They haven't really succeeded, even though that they have imposed administrative restrictions on purchases in many different cities and allowed local governments to do the same. You have this challenge of it's a very large and important marketplace. There's numerous participants. They have to respond to price signals. Beijing can't really regulate those prices very effectively, and they can't really impose administrative controls on those prices. And within the financial system, this is a significant proportion of collateral, not only for mortgage loans, but just in terms of real estate values for other corporate loans as well. And so there's a problem of if developers run into difficulties selling properties and default on loans and banks take this over as collateral, banks also might not be able to sell these properties in the event that they need to recover their values. There's pretty significant flow through into the financial system. But more importantly, I think this fundamental imbalance between supply and demand, it's changed very abruptly. We've all been talking about risks in China's property market for a decade. And because people have been warning about this for over a decade, many people are tuned out now. They don't really think that it's as significant. What's changed now is that supply is still at an all-time high. It's in the form of we're at roughly 1.6, 1.7 billion square meters of new starts. That's roughly 18 to 19 million new units being constructed per year. And demand is constrained not only by population growth, but by slowing urbanization, by limits on how much household debt can really grow for upgrading demand. And by the end of the Shantytown Redevelopment Program, which has helped to boost demand temporarily over the past five years. So you really do have big imbalances rising. The Evergrande News recently even though Evergrande is the largest developer in China, was not significant on its own, but it started to put property sector risk more in the center of concerns within domestic financial markets. And so it may be more difficult for property developers to gain access to credit. The other key development that's taken place just within the last year is a new set of regulations called informally the three red lines, This is different from anything that Beijing has done before, because they're no longer targeting shadow banks lending to property developers. They're just saying to property developers, based on your balance sheet levels, you can only grow X amount if you exceed these thresholds. And that is very likely to impose pretty significant limits on how much developers can borrow. And therefore, it'll create new pressures for them to cut prices in order to move additional sales. And that seems to be what's going on right now. There's been a reduction in land sales in September of October, and prices seem to be falling as developers are trying to raise revenue. So all of those developments are some of the reasons we think the property sector is a pretty central contributor to potential financial risk, and is definitely the sector worth watching. But the basic structure and characteristics of it are exactly why we thought it warranted such careful attention within the risk matrix. The problem is not really that suddenly there's a panic in the property sector and that people move their money out of property and into different asset classes, which is also what happens from time to time in China. There's this great sort of wall of speculative money, this wave of speculative money that moves around the economy from stocks to property. But if the property market falters and there's no transaction volumes, it just becomes illiquid. It just locks up a lot of assets. So that's why it's a particular threat. I think that it's overlooked the extent to which objective economic conditions at this point in the post-COVID environment, people are discussing relative economic performance more in terms of a narrative. China's narrative right now is basically that we've contained COVID and the economy is returning to trend growth. That helps China in foreign policy terms in, in many respects, because it inspires confidence about governance, about, about competence. And I think one of the points we make in the report is that the economic foundation within China's narrative is a bit more unstable than what has been discussed commonly. And it doesn't really make sense for either those that are trying to push for reform within China's system or even more hawkish elements to buy into that. Narrative that China's economic rise is inevitable because they are competently managing a very complex and rapidly growing financial system. Our point would be that a lot of what they've done to stabilize the economy in the post-COVID climate are exactly the same factors that have contributed to financial risk in the past: state-directed credit, telling banks to exercise forbearance toward uh, smaller borrowers. And so, it's important, I think, from a, just from a foreign policy perspective, to compete on that field of narrative, push back against that narrative when necessary, because it really does have implications through media coverage of how the rest of the world perceives the reliability of China as a partner, of course, but also for where investment should be made. Directing this toward a U.S. U.S. audience in particular, it's a mistake in, in U.S. policy, I think, to to downplay the significance of that sort of narrative competition. There's always a response among governments that tends to to downplay weakness within China, right? If you want to reform China's system, you basically want to try to urge to Chinese policymakers that you can reform because you're acting from a position of strength. And therefore there's a natural tendency to downplay some of the building fragilities there. And that's I think a it would benefit the country, it would benefit the overall would benefit, I think, U.S. policy and it'd benefit the overall narrative surrounding China's economy to have just a more realistic appraisal of what's actually happened within China's financial system, which has been this very rapid expansion of credit. And now the materialization of new credit risks rather than an assumption that this is going to continue indefinitely, because that assumption, I think, is going to be challenged you know, pretty abruptly at some point within the next three to five years.
4: 上段verse合作给李荣浩 而我的忧郁，是否需要张邦迪？
5: 保护一些伤 保护一些秘密, 等它发酵, she Ladies and gentlemen, the to 你的劍瓶子記,那隻豬一隻過幾隻八我滅決,早多興的不要一隻到病的靈精靈去切,bitfight一隻塊,你心上贏的樂蒂是上你巧克力,你奮戰著在經濟場,過興在天邊和我慶慶炸,在經濟場,你決滅,mother down a I Some
4: 我们从直到达留下回声